0: Um, okay, I'm going to pray for our time this morning, and I'm um, going to actually ask you guys to pray with me because I need it. And I think the more you pray, the better this will go. So, uh, Father, uh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your son. Thank you uh, that he came to us, that he shows us what you're like. And that what you're like is pretty remarkable and amazing. And I pray that this morning that we who, especially those of us who've been in the church for a long time, uh, or if we're new, God, that wherever we're at, that we would get a fresh sense of who you are. That we get a a renewed sense of your beauty, your majesty, your goodness, your nearness, your presence, and how much comfort there is in you that the world can't offer, the world can't match. Jesus, you're better. Would you help us to see that you're better this morning? We love you. We thank you. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so I, if you're new, we're in a series that is called Jesus Is, and um, this is a series through the Gospel of John, and we've been working through the Gospel of John for a long time. We're in chapter 14, and we're going to continue working through this gospel over the next you know, decade or so, and, um, and today we're kind of hitting like, a really interesting point in the story. Jesus The the disciples have actually just been told some pretty terrible news. They got hit with a lot. It's like one of you guys is a betrayer. One of you guys is going to, one of you guys is going to, is a deceiver and a betrayer. And the other one of you is actually going to, he's going to deny me. And by the way, I'm leaving. Boom, boom, boom. So this is a tender moment in the life of the young church. And so, as I was thinking about this morning to set set this up, I want to tell you guys. About a movie that I saw recently. I love movies and airplanes. You're going to hear a lot of references to those uh, if I'm up here preaching. And I saw a movie recently that I think kind of helped me really get in the mindset of this message. I watched it three times in like seven days. I've never done that before, except for maybe Back to the Future, which I've, done probably, I've probably done that. But this movie was remarkable. Has anybody seen this movie called Arrival? No one. One person, two people arrival with Amy Banks or Amy Adams, Dr. Banks. I'm going to tell you guys about this movie. So picture this. Uh, You are in a college classroom one day. You sit down. Your professor is in the front. Kind of like what I'm doing, just getting ready to kind of speak and lecture. And everyone in the room is distracted. Everyone's checking their phones. And the room is actually kind of empty. There's like four people. It's like, where is everyone? What's going on? Fine. And then I get into my my thing, my spiel, and then someone's like, hey, can you stop and turn the TV on? And this professor, like, turns the TV on, and what you see on the TV is these vessels from outer space that have landed in 12 different places in the world. They're, like, 1,500 feet high. They're, like, the size of a skyscraper in Manhattan, and no one has any idea who they are, why they're here, what they want. And maybe you've, you're like, you like sci-fi and you've seen a bunch of these alien invasion movies. I've only seen a few. And so for me, this is still kind of a fun genre to get into. And I watch this movie late at night by myself. And, um, and so the movie, can, the movie like unfolds from there. And, and this professor, Dr. Banks, she is a linguist. So she's an expert in languages and translations. And so when you have an alien invasion, apparently one of the first things you need is, like, good translators to understand what they're saying because they don't actually speak English, typically. Uh, So so they, like, basically the U.S. government's like, we want you, Dr. Banks, Amy Adams' character, we want you to come. And so, like, they basically show up one day. This guy puts, like, a little, like, recorder on her table in her office, presses play, and you hear this, And she's like, and she's like, is that? Yeah. How many? Assume two. And then they ask her, what are, you, what is she, what are they saying? And she's like, I don't, I can't. There's no way for me to transcribe this or to begin to understand this from an audio recording. In other words, I need to go meet with these beings face to face. And anyway, long story short, they pick this woman this linguist, this professor, to go to one of the shells. So they fly her out to Montana. Why Montana? Why not? That's where they drop down. And um, so they, they fly her in, they drop her off. There's this 1,500-foot-high shell. It's like a spaceship. It looks like if Apple had designed a spaceship. It's really sleek and beautiful and uh, kind of mysterious and dangerous. Um, it's like the iPhone... Never mind. Um, back to the story so she shows up she gets like a quick debrief and all of a sudden these alarms start blaring and they're like it's time for you to go it's time to go in she's like what so they quickly like pump her full of like a cocktail of drugs like antibiotics and things like that they put a hazmat suit on her they load her up into a truck that then drives down to the bottom of the shell, which, by the way, is hovering off the ground. It's not touching. It doesn't need to. It just hovers. And so Dr. Pink's, they drop her off, and there's a crane, or a forklift, I guess, and they, like, raise her up into this shell because apparently every 18 hours is when it opens for you to go in. And so she looks up, and it's this hollow shell. It's, like, 1,500 feet high. And I'm watching this by myself, and I'm terrified. I'm like, oh, my gosh, what's... Going to happen? What are you going to see? And so she and this team like set up their little, um, all the scientific equipment, all the recording equipment, and then she walks up. And there's just a big glass. And all of a sudden, they come. And you just see like dark figures come. and, And I'm, again, I'm freaking out. I'm watching this by myself late at night. Don't know why. But it hit me as I was thinking about this. This movie, this week, watched it three times. It hit me that there's this reality that on occasion, very rarely in life, we come face to face with something that overwhelms us, with fear. Something that could destroy us in a heartbeat. Uh, This happened to me in New York City with T-Rex. Perhaps you've met him. He's there. They have one in New York City. It's like 40 feet long. It's got jaws that are four feet long and teeth that are six feet Six inches long, I should say. And it freaked me out. Yes, it's, a, it's fossilized. It's not like Jurassic Park where it's going to come and uh, get me, but it was terrifying. And people like this sort of thing. There's people who pay tons of money to go to South Africa to do something that sounds absolutely insane, which is swim with, with great white sharks. Has anybody ever done that? No. Crocodiles. Okay. Okay. So there's like this, this power, like something that could easily overwhelm us, destroy us. We're just drawn to it. Why would anybody do that? Swim with sharks. It's because it's terrifying. And then at the same time, it's awesome. It's terrifying and it's awesome. Like the T-Rex, like the beings in arrival. So why do I mention all this? I think it's important for us to kind of get a, a better sense of the reality that God is the original terrifying being. Who's also awesome. We can forget this very easily, especially those of us who have been in the church for a long time, and we can kind of get real comfortable and presume on the presence of God. God's the one who created the T-Rex and the great white shark. Little, they give a little hint of how powerful and majestic he is and beautiful. Just a little hint. And I think we can get very comfortable kind of in churchianity, And we forget this stuff. I think we forget that in the Old Testament, Israel was called up to the mountain to be with God. And what did they say? No way. Moses, you go on up there or else we'll die. That's the sense that they had of God. So I think this morning, this is all a long setup just to say, I think we're in for a bit of a reset this morning about God, how we think about him. This week I've been singing this song constantly. It has this lyric that says, Wake me up from my sleep. I feel like I've been asleep. And I think God wants to wake me up and I think he wants to wake us up by giving us a more accurate picture of who he is and by extension who we are. So we're going to do that. We're going to turn over to John 14. 1 to 14 if you have your Bible. John 14. 1 to 14 if you don't. We should have the slides up. And the disciples are facing hard times. And Jesus is preparing them to face them. John 14, verse 1. Here we go. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. This is Jesus speaking. Believe in God. Believe also in me. This this week is I was really chewing on this idea of God. We can read over that pretty quickly, huh? God. Believe in God. Cool. Who is he? Who is he? I was, on, I was online, I was reading the news, something I shouldn't have been doing, but I did it. And I found this article that was actually scientific, fact-based, and I really enjoyed it. It was about the, apparently recently scientists have discovered the biggest explosion in the universe. And here's what, here's what the article said in some ways this blast as an explosion is similar to how the eruption of Mount St Helens in 1980 ripped off the top of the mountain have you guys ever seen the video of Mount St Helens erupting or if you've ever flown up to Seattle maybe you've seen what's left of it like a, it looks different the top of it blew off and so this researcher is saying that that eruption in space god's universe his cosmos that eruption in space was like Mount St. Helens, only that it's as if the, if the crater were fifty, you can fit 15 Milky Way galaxies in a row in the crater. And just like where the, where the eruption punched into the cluster's hot gas, whatever that means. Big explosion. <laughs> How does one comprehend the size of the universe? I think this is interesting because like 15 Milky Way galaxies, what does that even mean? So imagine if the distance from our earth to the sun was represented by this. This is 93 million miles. Okay, it takes eight minutes if you're going at the speed of light to cover this distance. Does that make sense? It's a long ways. So to try to get you to think through how big God's universe really is. If you were to have this be the distance between us and our sun, how many of these would you need to get us to the distance between us and the nearest star. You would need 71 feet of paper stacked up. So it would go probably to the end of this room. That's how far that is. Again, 93 million miles, 71 feet of that. That's 4.3 light years. The diameter of the Milky Way galaxy is 100,000 light years. Do you know how big the stack of paper would be? It would get you from here to Phoenix. Phoenix. One Milky Way, galaxy. There's only one, but then take that and multiply it by 15. Do you know how, where that, the paper would get you then? Iceland, roughly. A stack of paper. And that's the eruption. That's not the whole universe. That's the eruption that they just discovered. That's how big our world is. If you wanted to get to the edge of the universe, you would need a stack of paper 31 million miles high. So, a third of the way to the sun. At a certain point, you're just like, Pfft. what does this even mean? What's my point? God is a being of unspeakable power who could destroy us in an instant. Forget the T Rex or the great white, they've got nothing on Yahweh. So how does the God who created all things and sustains the universe use his power? What does he want? What is he about? What should we feel about him? How does he speak to those who are going through a hard time, who are anxious about the future, which I think would would be like many of us in the room. Let's keep reading to find out. We'll read the rest of the passage, and then we'll we'll dive in. Verse 2. In my Father's house, in God's house, are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where you am where that so where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Verse five, Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Verse six, Jesus told him, I am the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father, to God, except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Verse 8 Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Verse 9 Jesus said to him, Have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Verse 12, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. The all powerful, all knowing God has come near to us in Christ. Not to destroy us, but to save us and welcome us into his family. Is there anything that's more comforting than that? It's understanding that he has come near. Better than Netflix, better than wine and beer, better than baseball, better than shopping, or whatever your thing is. All of those are gifts, not bad things. They're good things, but they point us to the giver, the true giver of comfort. So I want to, I want to camp out and I have three points for this morning. If you're taking notes, you're following along, I'm going to have them on the screen. What brings us true comfort? Number 1, the presence of Jesus. Number 2, a place in his family. Number 3, potential for fruitful ministry. The presence of Jesus, place in his family, and the potential for fruitful ministry. Here we go. Number 1, presence of Jesus. Verse 3 says this, "If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself." So that where I am, you may be also. Where I am, you may be also. I've been thinking about this first a lot this week. And to kind of set it up, I, th- I kind of thought of like a hypothetical scenario that I'm going to share with you guys. So imagine you're in the 1800s, in the middle of the 1800s. you live in the Midwest, and you are you know someone who is going to go west. Someone's going to take that journey west. And that person has three children, and he is explaining to those kids what is about to happen. So if you know U.S. history, uh, which I'm I'm no expert at U.S. history, but there was this migration out west, and it was a very dangerous, harrowing journey over the mountains to the coast. And so imagine if you have a father explaining to his three young children, I'm going away. And I'm going to be gone, but I'll come back to you. So this father is like trying to comfort his children. These are words of comfort. Jesus is saying something very similar. Now, imagine if the pioneer returns and he tells a tale of adventure and danger and heroism and courage. It's the kind of thing that books would be written about. Later, the kids hear these stories and they are awed. They are just in awe of their father. Now, again, this is the 1800s, so think like a hallmark single, you know, a a school. Everybody meets in one one building, all the kids, all the ages, like that kind of life, that kind of community, very small community. Everybody knows. So imagine one of the kids, one of the father's kids, is like really into telling the story of his dad. He like loves telling his dad's stories. And he cares deeply about the story being told right. He has like a deep sense of awe. And there's another child who's just happy that he's back. He's like, I just want to be with you all the time. Don't leave. And then you've got another kid who just doesn't, they're just over the attention. And they're just like, okay, can we just be at peace? Can we just go, go to school, come home, and chill? So, the first child, who is passionate about telling the story and teaching others, Something interesting happens. Over the course of time, as this child is telling the story of the father's adventures, something begins to shift. That desire to tell the story is kind of co-opted by a desire to stand out and impress because he realizes, as I tell this story, other people think of me differently. They view me differently. They view me as impressive. It gives me influence of other people and achievement in their eyes. So, a subtle shift happens in the relationship between the father and the son. And this child becomes more concerned with how he looks as he tells the story than about how others are impacted and drawn into the father's story. So, that's one child. The second child, who just wants to be with dad all the time, starts off as an earnest desire to spend time with dad, but then something changes. those deep emotions that were kind of carrying that child early on begin to wane a little bit. No longer is excited to be with dad. At a heart level, it kind of starts to wander and drift elsewhere. And then the third child who just wants to fit in and not draw attention. This child is excited about the father's return and adventures, but this child is afraid. They don't want to say the wrong thing. They don't want to stand out. They don't want to mess up. So they avoid talking about the father's story might even downplay it when it comes up. Over time, the repeated downplaying and avoiding takes a toll. And their their heart starts to grow cold. They're no longer as excited about the father. Maybe they feel a level of guilt, but they just don't know how to change. Why do I tell this story about these three kids and their dad? I think these three kids present three alternatives to finding comfort in the presence of Jesus that we are drawn to. The first one this kind of intellectualism. We can accumulate information about Jesus without actually knowing him or enjoying him. It's actually less about how we love and more about how we look. This is particularly dangerous in this area because this is a highly churched area. So we're very used to and familiar with the Bible, reading it, knowing it, studying it, outlining it, mapping it out, reading in its original languages, whatever. You can go down the list. There's a subtle shift that can happen, away from excitement about the story, what it tells you about the Father, to how does this make me look? It's a way to find comfort in our performance, not in his presence. That's the first child. Second child, be like emotionalism. We can pursue an experience of Jesus that eventually forgets about Jesus. So it's less about learning to love a person in the ordinary and extraordinary parts of life than about seeking an extravagant encounter. Not that those are bad, but if you're married or have any desire to be married, you'll know pretty quick that you cannot build a resilient and robust marriage if you expect it to be a honeymoon all the time. How good and how wise is it of God let us go through these desert seasons to break us of this honeymoon mindset and recenter us on the comfort of his presence in the midst of the wilderness it's the God that we know and follow so the intellectual child the performer finds comfort in their performance this one in an experience and then this other child has more room in their heart for the worries and cares of the world than for the father this child can allow what others think, say, or do to control them. And other voices can drown out the joy, the simple joy of knowing the Father and his love and his story. Do you see yourself in any of these children? At different times in my life, I've been all of each of these at different moments. So if this resonates with you, you're not alone. The problem is that they've missed the comfort of being with him and are looking to something else. Are you guys with me? Is this making sense? Okay. There's good news, though. The father's still in the story. He's patient with his children. He loves them. His journey, okay, think about the dad going out west. What's that journey about? He's going out, coming back for the kids, to take them to a new life in a new land. And that's the heart that we see in Jesus here. I'm going to leave and I'm going to come back to you. I'm going to take you where I'm going. So if you find yourself steeped in intellectualism without intimacy today, you're finding comfort in your performance. Maybe you're here and you're just disheartened that the honeymoon is over. Or if you're here and you're afraid of being your true self, cheer up. Jesus knows. He knows. And you can return to him. You can actually pursue a life of intimacy in his presence that embraces knowing him, suffering for him, being with him. You can tell him. Something that struck me this week is about how easily I make everything about me. I don't know if anybody's had a revelation like that recently. But it's like, actually, I'm pretty self-focused. I see one hand. Thank you. I see that hand. I've made this about me. You can actually ask for forgiveness. Did you guys know that? It's okay. Totally fine. You can bring him your fears today. If you're a fearful person, very tender about what other people think about me, you can actually be honest about that. You can bring him your fears today. You can bring him your disappointment today because his desire is to be with you. If you go back to that verse... Verse one, uh, verse three. I go away and I come back so that I may be with you. I may be with you. That's what he wants—is to be with you. Do you believe that today? True comfort is found in the presence of Jesus. True comfort is found in the presence of Jesus. That's my first point. Second point: place in His family. True comfort is found. We have a place in his family. Verse 2 says this. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? What does it mean that in my father's house are many rooms? It means there's tons of space for everybody. As I was chewing on this this week, hopefully that's comforting to you. That means no matter where you've been, what you've done, there's space for you in the Father's house. And the door is wide open because Jesus has made a way. And there's tons of space. Here's the thing, though. I was chewing on it this week, thinking about it for my own life, thinking about it for us. Having a place in the Father's house is comforting, and I'll explain a little bit later why it's comforting, but it's not comfortable. You, you, comforting... Not comfortable. It's not comfortable. In this household, it gets messy. It gets awkward. Sometimes real quick. Sometimes you're just like, whoa, what just happened? It's like hard to wrap your mind around all the things that are happening in this room. By the way, this, this room, I don't mean this. This is an event. This is great. This is a Sunday gathering of God's people. I'm talking about the family of God. People who belong to their committed part of this community. If you're, if you're a guest here, we're really happy that you're here and the door is wide open and you're welcome to come in. But right now I'm talking about like if you actually known. If you get to the point where you are known and you know others, you know. Awkward. It's awkward. But the point isn't to avoid awkwardness as much as we'd like that. The point isn't to just feel at ease all the time. The point isn't to Stand out to to, to be comfortable in your performance here. The point is, this is a comforting community. Jesus has given you a place. If you believe in him, you have a place in his family. And it's comforting. Why? Because there's people who know exactly what you're going through, who are also seeking to follow Jesus, and who can help you. There's people that you can actually confess to. There's people that you can unpack with what you're going through. There's people that you can actually, that can actually share the burden that you carry. There are people in this, in, in this church, and that, by the way, this isn't just us, this is the church, the family of God worldwide. There's local expressions of the body of Christ. This is one of those local expressions. But I'm talking about the church, the household of God. It's a place of comfort, but it's not comfortable. And so here's my question, like what, What might keep you today from experiencing your place in the family of God as comforting, even if it's uncomfortable? Is there a fear of being exposed today? A fear of being seen? A fear of getting hurt? A fear of of opening your heart to someone and having them not know what to do with it? Maybe even hurt you. True comfort is found in having a place in his family. Why? Because it's his family. It's the family of Jesus, where he's actually Lord and King. And so when we when things get uncomfortable and messy, we have a way forward. It's called the way of Jesus, it's discipleship. It's following Him. When we sin, what do we do? We confess and repent. We change our mind and say that's not okay. The way I talked to you was not okay. What I did to you was not okay. Would you please forgive me? Would you please pray for me? Because my goodness, I am struggling right now. Not comfortable, but comforting. The church is a place where people can call you out. That is extremely uncomfortable. For the one calling out, unless you'd like to do that sort of thing. So I think I've said this from the, before from the front. If you like doing that sort of thing, please come find me afterwards. You have to explain it to me. And you can also pray for me, because I think I need to do more of that. And I tend to shy away from it and run from it. But this is a place where we find comfort in being challenged. Because we are too loved to be allowed to continue in sinful patterns that are destructive. Comfort not comfortable. We put too much of a premium as a society on comfortable. We really do. I don't think, I think, again, it's like a wake-up moment. Do we know how good we have it? How easy we have it? This isn't, by the way, I'm not saying this is like a shame thing. I know every single one of us in this room has a lot on their plate, is tired, and some of you are probably close to burning out. So I'm not minimizing any of that. But what I am saying is that we've probably never had more distractions at our fingertips ever in human history. I find myself grabbing my phone all the time when I'm feeling a little bit of discomfort. You know, I think um, I'm not a scientist, as you probably have gathered uh, <laughs> from me opening my mouth, but my understanding is that scientists, uh, they've been able to figure out that like, when you, when you get a like on social media or you Find something new, it just like, gives you a little hit of something. Does anybody know what that is? Endorphins. Endorphins. I heard like three different things. What? <laughs> Dopamine. Dopamine. Endorphins. Okay. When I took science classes, there's usually a crooked letter associated like C or D minus. I remember these words. I don't remember what they mean. <laughs> Dopamine. Make you feel good. I, th- I think. I don't know. So I hear... Here we go. Man, don't you guys wish there was a co-pilot here to help me? <laughs> Love you, Tom. <laughs> What's my point? What's my point in saying all this? There's all sorts of false comforts out there that quickly take us out of the space where we would actually need to press into the comfort of community. I'll tell you what, I'm not okay with it anymore. I'm waking up. This is our woke moment, church. <laughs> Sorry, I don't mean that to whatever. You know what I mean. We're waking up to this reality. Okay? True comfort is found in having a place in his family. Is this a place of comfort for you? Or is this a place of discomfort, maybe a better way to put it? If you're not uncomfortable, something's missing. That isn't to say that every interaction is gonna be uncomfortable and awful, by no means. But if if there's never a discomfort, if you never feel exposed, if you're never taking a risk, if you're never sharing something that could blow up in your face, somebody knew about it, if the wrong person knew, something's missing. We're missing the comfort of being having a place in his family. Do you want that? Like, you can have that today. Jesus is offering you his peaceful presence. He's reminding you of the place that you have in his community, in his family. That's my second point. True comfort is found in having a place in his family. Point number three, potential for, you, for fruitful ministry. This is the last point. Potential for fruitful ministry. Verse 12, truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. If you want to get into a theological fist fight, get a couple of people on different sides of the spectrum to try to explain to you what this verse means. It's, going to cause, it's uncomfortable. Speaking of uncomfortable, this verse right here. What do you do with that? What sorts of things did Jesus do? It's actually, that's, um, this is interactive. What sorts of things did Jesus do? <laughs> he, healed. he healed people. Yeah. Anything else? He cast out demons. He, out demons. Yeah. he raised the guy from the dead. Food. Many people. Multiplied food. Yeah, it's good. All right, so he did a lot of really cool stuff, right? He did some things that um, I haven't really seen personally. So, what does this mean? So, I think this means a couple of things. I think the the verse ahead of it, I should have I should have put it up. Actually, do we have it? The verse in front? Oh, there it is. Uh, Eleven, maybe. Eleven. No, that's on me. I didn't I didn't prep you well. Eleven. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. There's a sense that these works that Jesus is talking about, they revealed the Father. They revealed who the Father is. And so I think the kind of works that Jesus is talking about are works that reveal what God is like. There's love that shows the world this is what God is like. Could it include miracles? Sure. I don't believe that those have ceased. I don't think Scripture teaches us that. If you want to talk about that, come find me afterwards. We'll chat. I know not everybody believes that. And you don't need to believe that today, by the way, to be part of this community. I'm just letting you know where I'm at. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus is saying, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. As I was chewing on this verse, it hit me. Jesus is restoring something to us that we lost long ago. In the garden, God created man to do what? To rule and reign with him, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And there's a real sense in which we lost this when Adam sinned and fell against God. He abdicated like a king abdicating his throne. Adam abdicated. Here's the good news, though. Who is Jesus? He's the new Adam, he's the last Adam, he's the one who didn't sin in the garden. When he was in the garden being tempted, what did Jesus say? Not my will, but yours. Not what Adam said. Certainly not. He never abdicated. And now, this Jesus is the new Adam at the right hand of the Father, making us all new. What does that mean practically? He brings us back into the family business. We get to rule and reign again with him. You are restored to fruitful ministry. Do you believe that? If your faith and trust is in Jesus, you are restored to fruitful ministry. I think a fair question is what keeps us from actually believing this? What actually makes it hard to engage in fruitful ministry? I think there's a reality that sometimes we're just, we just don't know. What does that even mean? To engage in fruitful ministry. There's a reality also of like fear. How could I possibly do that? What will it cost me with respect to time, social capital, energy? Does it have to look like having a mic in your hand in front of people? This apparently is one of like the Besides the fear of death, this is like the most terrifying thing that people do on a regular basis. And so, does ministry just mean like public talking that very few people actually enjoy doing? What else keeps us from engaging in fruitful ministry? Sometimes I think we've just done too much. We feel like this guilt of like, I've just done too much. Or this shame that says like, I'm too much. I'm too much. Here's the reality. If Jesus has cleansed you, going back to like John 13, if Jesus has washed your feet, which was a symbolic act of washing and cleansing our filth away, our sin, if you've allowed him to wash your feet, you have your marching orders already. It's fruitful ministry. These are works that lift up the Father and the Son They help people see what God is like. Do you know that there's work for you that lifts up the Father and the Son today? If you're a parent in the room, you're parenting. What could be more of a display of the love of the Father than parenting a child? But you don't have to be a parent. Jesus, among other things, he worked. He had a job. You can reflect what Jesus is like in your workplace. You can reflect what Jesus is like in your school, in your neighborhood in your coffee coffee shop at the family get together everywhere the sky's the limit there's opportunities day to live and love in a way that shows others what God is like the goodness and the mercy of God what stops us? I think we forget the gospel I think we forget the gospel I was going through a book with some of the guys in this room called Gospel Fluency and I think the first line of the book is, we're all unbelievers, which maybe you've never heard that before. You're like, what are you talking about? I've been in the church for X many years, and I believe. I got baptized. I believe. Whatever. Whatever you, th- like, whatever you look to, here's the thing. We forget the gospel all the time. We don't actually believe with clarity and consistency. We sort of believe, like the disciples. You ever read the New Testament and you read what it was like for Jesus to engage the disciples in a conversation? Or if, they're bumbling, man. And there's only, there's like two ways to read that. You're like, yep, that's me, or idiots." <laughs> Hopefully over the course of time, as we realize how much unbelief there is, it's like, oh, this is what I'm really like. Because at the same time, then it's like, this is what Jesus is really like, Patient gentle, kind, merciful. We forget the gospel, and that impacts our ability, our willingness, our desire to jump into fruitful ministry. We forget that because of Jesus, all of life is sacred. He's renewing and restoring everything. So a uh, quote-unquote secular job is not less important than, a, than this. It's not. We forget, I'll give you some personal examples, we forget that responding to our children with love and patience is an embodiment of the way that we believe God has treated us. We forget how patient and kind God is to His kids, and so we lose it with them, guilty. Here's one: we forget. Again, I'm talking about fruitful ministry, love that shows what the, what the Father's like. We forget that patiently bearing with the sins and flaws and awkwardness of others is a way to reflect how God has dealt with us how has he treated our flaws and sin and awkwardness with tons of kindness and patience and mercy and when we don't show that to each other we're showing I don't actually believe this gospel and there's more we forget that Jesus qualifies us for ministry and we don't qualify ourselves we forget that ministry is not a performance it's going to work with our dad And there's more. Visiting the elderly and the sick and the vulnerable, those that Jesus' is heart broke for, those who are most at risk, in danger, marginalized. There's more. We forget that that's who we are and how Jesus treated us. So, how good, though, is this gospel? How freeing and transforming. I want to remind you of it. I'm going to call the band up. I'm going to close this, we're going to close out with this story. Okay, going back to Arrival. The movie I mentioned three hours ago when I started preaching. <laughs> there's this moment when Dr. Banks, Amy Adams' character, is face-to-face with these beings that could obliterate her. This happened, something like this happened in biblical history. One such example is found in Isaiah 6. You guys don't have it in the back, so don't worry about this. I'm just going to read this. Isaiah 6. I'm going to read it to you guys. This is from the, the words of the prophet Isaiah. Not just any old guy, not just any random person. The prophet Isaiah, who was is a pillar Verse 1, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, Yahweh, seated on a high and lofty throne, and the helm of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. And one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. The foundations of the doorways shook at the sound of their voices, and the temple was filled with smoke. Then I said, Isaiah, this man of righteousness, this pillar of Israel, this man who was as zealous as anybody, what does he say? Woe is me. I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the king the Lord of armies. So basically what he's saying is I'm going to die. All of the curses of the covenant that I'm telling Israel about for disobedience, they're all falling on me right now because I'm exposed before the one and only holy God. So what happens? Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. So from the altar of God the seraphim flies over what does he do? he touches Isaiah's mouth with it and says now that this has touched your lips your iniquity is removed and your sin is atoned for God himself removed is Isaiah's sin the Lord took Isaiah's crookedness and made it straight he took his failure to love God and people and washed it away it's sort of a mystery how that works until later in the story, until so Jesus comes. Jesus is God with us, the God who's come, not to destroy and obliterate us, but to, in a sense, come bring God's presence and cleanse us. Was what you would expect with this idea of God's holiness? Is that as if as something sinful or impure came into the presence of God? That would be obliterated, that person or whatever. But the truth is, Jesus comes and touches those who are unclean and impure. He cleanses those who are filthy. And he does it by being crushed in our place so we wouldn't be crushed by our sin on the cross. That's the way. That's where Jesus is going in this passage. Now, verse 8, Isaiah 6 says this. This is what happens immediately after he's cleansed. Get this. I heard a voice saying, the voice of the Lord asking, who will I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah, who had just previously said what? Woe is me. I might as well be dead because I can't be here. I don't belong. Isaiah says this, here I am, send me. And what's the divine response? Go. God washed Isaiah and released him to fruitful ministry. All the fear gone. because he was cleansed. What does Jesus want? He wants to give us a gift and partner with us. If you end up watching that movie arrival, check it out. And the end of the movie, guess what? Those aliens, they're not dangerous. They actually came to give a gift and partner with us. Did I just give away the movie? Yeah. You're welcome. <laughs> It's really good. And it's much the same for us today. So I want to encourage you, invite you to stand up. And I want to ask you, what is God highlighting to you today from this morning's message? As I was praying on it this morning, I really do believe that God is basically saying to some of you, come and be clean, come and be cleansed. Uh, This week I sinned, I was sinfully angry, and I spent time in Psalm 51. And with the help of a really helpful sermon by Tim Keller on it, I realized that I needed to be cleansed from my sin and recover the joy of my salvation. I was not believing the gospel and I sinned. I took God's grace for granted and didn't extend it. And so I apologized, I repented. And this week has been really good. I feel like I've experienced a level of renewal. But it started with cleansing. It started with cleansing. If you need to be cleansed, get in line, you're not alone. It's okay. But I want to also add, it's not okay to stay there. Come let Jesus wash you. You have to submit to his cleansing. For others of us, I think God wants us to embrace the comfort of the community. Not that it's comfortable, but that it's a comfort to have a place in God's household. So after, after I sinned, um, I felt the comfort of the community this week, even though it wasn't comfortable. I called Mike, who's in my gospel community, and I confessed my sin. I can't tell you how good it is to know that I have family that has my back that's safe and that can point me to Jesus when I stumble and fall because I've taken my eyes off off of him not comfortable if you pick up the phone to call and tell someone about your sin that's pretty uncomfortable but it was comforting and sweet because I have a brother who points me back to him and the fact that I am cleansed God's not done with me there are other people in this room maybe you need to be cleansed Maybe you need to embrace the uncomfortable aspect of the comforting community, others of us, I think God wants us to take a step of faith into some fruitful ministry maybe it 's signing up for a serve team or grabbing someone from your from your community and taking them out to coffee to simply listen and encourage, or maybe it 's actually reaching out when somebody comes to mind when somebody 's put on your heart tell them i 'm praying for you here 's how i 'm praying for you. Is there anything going on in your life that I can pray for. Some of you, I think, actually need to begin to pray about a potential ministry assignment that God has put on your heart that maybe has gone dormant or it's on the shelf. For me, this week, after being cleansed and finding comfort with God's people, it was a great week of ministry. And I know it wasn't me. So one of the things that I reminded myself of is this quote that says, um, Oh, stupid heart, you don't think that was you that you accomplished that. It's a gift of grace. So even the fruit is a gift. And here's the best part of this week for me. Because I was reading this passage, and because I was moved by it, I actually took it seriously and invited Jesus, his presence, into all of my week. And there were moments when I didn't, and I became aware of it, and I realized it was in those moments that I typically sinned. And so it was a moment to go back, repent, apologize, apologize, and slow down. I found myself slowing down a lot. I didn't realize like how much I push. I push my kids, I push every, you know, I just push. Then I slowed down because Jesus was ever in a hurry. So if I want to stay in the presence of Jesus, I can't be rushed. I trusted Jesus with my time. And there's this assurance that he's with me and he's not rushed. So, what is it for you? Do you need cleansing? Do you need to get uncomfortable and find comfort in this community? Or do you need to talk to God potentially about a fruitful ministry that he has planned out for you? I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna sing. we we'll up a little bit. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this crew of people that are here gathered in your name. And I pray that the presence of Jesus would be a comfort to us. That even though we should be obliterated, we're safe. He died for us so that we can be made new and right and clean. And I pray that that cleansing wouldn't just leave us, "Ah, oh, I'm good, but it would actually lead us to want to press into the discomfort of community. It's actually a comfort to us. And then from there, God, would you open our eyes to the, the fruitful ministry that you have for us, the ways in which we can love that shows what you're like to other people. And then by this love, the world would know that we're your disciples and that by our good deeds, the world would look and glorify you, our Father in heaven, just like it did for Jesus. God, we love you. we thank you. In your name we pray, amen.